Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio. Learn more about us at www.21stcenturyradio.com. What does history teach us about near-Earth objects and their impact on civilizations? The year 2024, we are told, marks the time when a certain comet is due to pass by the Earth for the first time in 3,500 years. Our guest, Graham Phillips, writes that when the Earth passed through the tail of this comet in 1500 B.C., one saw aggressive tendencies and civilizations around the world suddenly appear. This portion of our program, we're joined by this fantastic historical detective, Graham Phillips. He's written on many subjects, known well for his Templars and Ark of the Covenant, on subjects of King Arthur, Robin Hood, Alexander the Great, and the Marian Conspiracy, to name a few. In his Baron Company 2007 release, The End of Eden, Graham Phillips chronicles the sudden shifts in social behavior and religious philosophy that occurred thousands of years ago, suggesting, interestingly, that the chemical residue brought by the comet's proximity contaminated the atmosphere, affecting human life overall. The question then is, will it again? Could it again? And the hidden mystery part that was suppressed, perhaps, in other times continues to be that maybe the stronger the myth, meaning the longer that residue of the archetypal journey in that myth, the the more true we might find it. I mean, it's a hypothesis I sort of thought of this afternoon in looking at all your work, that maybe the myth is really what we should pursue in the first place. Well, I'm... I'm sort of tr- I'm working on a, an idea at the moment of putting together a, a book about the amount of myths throughout the world that turn out to have, you know, historical validity. I mean, for example, the one of the things that I investigated was the plagues of Egypt as described in the Old Testament of the Bible when uh, the Pharaoh refuses to set the Israelite slaves free and Moses talks to God and God tells him that if the Pharaoh doesn't let them free, that he'll uh, smite Egypt with a series of plagues, and then this happens as a plague of darkness and a, a plague of fiery hailstones, and 
and locusts and, and so forth. And uh, all of these particular things that described in the Bible could have been caused by a volcanic eruption, um, a volcanic eruption which produced uh, ash clouds that darken the skies by day and fiery hailstones falling from the sky could be pumice. Uh, swarms of locusts and flies could be created by the disruption to the ecosystem of a volcanic eruption. And, uh, and, and, and when you look into the, you know, what's known from the, age, the historical records from other cultures, we find out that there was um, a volcanic eruption at the time that the Bible places the plagues of Egypt. So you find, well, quite a lot of these things that seem to start off be, to be mythological or, or explained in religious uh, terms very often turn out to be descriptions of ordinary events, although, uh, say, ordinary, uh, extraordinary but uh, normal events, which um, have just been exaggerated over time. I, I was reading an interesting recent article where they found the pharaoh's chariots in the Sea of Reeds. Yes, that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating, too. I mean, that's, again, the more that you actually, you know, the, the more time that archaeology, modern archaeology, has to sort of dig things up, the more that uh, many of these stories in the Bible that were thought to be mythological are proving to be based on fact. And so when you look at sort of this journey that your many works describe, I mean, there's, there's sort of a, a thread that runs through them. How would you describe what that is? Well, a lot of my investigations until recently have connected with uh, biblical events. Uh, as I say, it started with the investigation of the plagues of Egypt, which could have been caused by a volcanic eruption that took place in the middle of the, uh, uh, the Mediterranean. Um, the prevailing wind was in the direction of Egypt, and this caused all these um, effects. And, I, and I'd have to say, from an Orthodox perspective within Jewish Orthodoxy, one would say, well, the Creator calls that event to occur in the first place, whereas a skeptic would say, oh, these were just events and God had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so some would say the primacy of the event that calls these plagues was also the doing of the Creator and not just an event that then people ascribe supernatural meaning to. Well, I certainly know that uh, the more I've investigated these things, the more, uh, for example, the, the fall of the walls of Jericho seemed to have been caused by a earthquake. There is um, the, uh, which we'll probably talk about later on, this comet that appeared appears to have been described in the Old Testament as a, a star, a, a mysterious star appearing in the sky. We've got the ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, as it was originally, it seems to have been in northern Egypt near the Mediterranean, was caused by a tsunami. Now, you go on and on and find that a number of uh, rather strange... It's the coincidence of it. Over and over again, okay, you can explain the what is described in the Old Testament, um, or, or, or the Jewish Bible, what, what is described as being... Um, they could be natural events, but strangely enough, these natural events seem to, to over and over again, benefit one particular group of people, mm -hmm. which were the early Israelites. And of course, in the Hasidic tradition, that's what they teach, is that the Creator uses natural phenomena 
in order to do whatever work needs to be done in order to restore or destroy. When when you look, though, at the comet, and let's let's sort of shift our focus to that for a moment, because, Graham, your wonderful book, End of Eden, The End of Eden, The Comet That Changed Civilization, is another one of these sort of massive pieces of detective work that connected the dots throughout the world. And so it's not just focused on one particular tradition, but the many traditions that speak to what happened in this time period. So give our audience, if you would, Graham, the the background to this time period when this particular comet came through the Earth's orbit in 1500 BC. Okay, well, it's roughly about the the same period of time that that in in ancient Israel, the uh, or in ancient, the ancient Israelites were being enslaved in Egypt. It's uh, about the same time as the Olmec civilization was flourishing, or the early Olmec civilization was flourishing in uh, Central America. It was the time when Stonehenge was being built in Britain, and uh, the first, uh, one of the first dynasties was being founded in China. One of the oldest civilizations in India, in the Indus Valley, was, uh, was flourishing too. Um, the interesting thing is that what I first noticed, and this is because I was working on other mysteries, and I kept coming across the fact that in different cultures throughout the world at this same time, approximately 1500 BC, three and a half thousand years ago, which is about the Middle Bronze Age or so. Yeah, but yeah, about yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, that what happened is that cultures throughout the world started worshiping a new god or a new series of gods that were represented by a, a circle with a series of lines radiating underneath it. Now, many uh, anthropologists have suggested that this was sun worship. Well, why suddenly should cultures as far and wide as Mexico and China and India and the Middle East and Britain all start to worship the sun at the same time, and strangely enough, all represent the sun in the same way as like a, a disc with lines beneath it rather than lines radiating out equally around the, the, the sphere, the disc. Um, it seemed to me that whatever, you know, in each case, in, in, in paintings, tomb paintings and so on, this particular rayed disc, if you like, sometimes also shown with wings, is depicted in scenes above chariots below, and, and so obviously it, it's obviously something in the sky. Now, if it isn't the sun, and all these people have suddenly seen something new in the sky at the same time, what could it be? Well, it looks remarkably like the depiction of a comet with a tail. And in fact, we know that this is exactly what did happen, because the ancient Chinese started recording comets um, slightly earlier than this period, and they record that a comet appeared a massive comet with 10 tails because, contrary to popular opinion, comets can have a number of tails, although most of them only have one or two that are visible from Earth. Um, There have been comets sighted in in recent history that have had up to seven tails, but that's the largest recorded. This one had 10 tails, according to the ancient Chinese astronomers, and uh, it was so bright in the sky that it was larger than the full moon the actual uh, nuclear, the, the, the head of the comet was, was huge. So we know now that this must have been a very, very particularly bright comet that appeared at that time. In fact, the year, exact year, was 1486 BC. And it was so spectacular and unusual that it started people 
not only depicting it in you know art in temples and tombs and so on, but brought about the religion or worship of a, a new god that people thought this was. And and how long is it estimated that the comet was within sort of the visual proximity of people on Earth? About two or three months. So it gradually got bigger. It wasn't that big all the time, but uh, unfortunately, the 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 the, 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 um, the records of the Chinese aren't that detailed as to how large the actual how, how you know exactly when it first became visible. But they are, are do there... describe it as being about four times the actual. This is the the head of the comet. Four times the size of the full moon is seen from Earth. Which is enormous, given Which that you can see the full moon. I mean, comet. if you look up and all of a sudden there's another great light in the sky and it doesn't happen to be the sun, <laughs> you go, whoa, what is that? Well, look, we're going to take a little break, and then I want to come back and, and begin with if there are other instances in history where something this magnitude occurred, and then we'll look at the very particulars, as you have done such a beautiful job of doing in the end of Eden. Again, if you're just joining us, Graham Phillips is our guest. His magnificent 2007 Baron Company release, The End of Eden, The Comet That Changed Civilization. Find more guests on the Facebook page for 21st Century Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more after this. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio. Learn more about us at www.21stcenturyradio.com. So coming back to this comet that has a very special name, 12P Pons Brooks. I assume that's named after its discoverers? That's, um, yeah, in more recent times. In more recent times. that at the time. It was, um, um, we don't know what different cultures called it. Um, but that's what modern astronomers have called what this comet appears to have been. And how, because I know really virtually nothing about astronomy, how do we know a comet from 1500 BC is the same comet that's going to come into the Earth orbit between 20, around 2024? Well, basically, um, comets orbit the Sun, but erratically, not in the same way as the, the, the Earth goes around the Sun, approximately the same distance from it in the entire time it takes to go around it. And comets take a lot longer to orbit the Sun than the Earth does. But they will come. what happens is they come close into the Sun, to the inner solar system, and then shoot out far past the orbits of the, uh, the furthest planets like uh, Neptune and Pluto. Um, and and the, some comets short-orbit comets come back every 70 or 80 years, but some long-orbit comets take thousands of years to go around the sun, uh, to go right deep into space and Mm -hmm. then coming back into the inner solar system. And based on their appearances over periods of time, uh, astronomers can work out what comets were seen at what dates in history. So when you look then at the history of the time period, as you began to tell us um, that in 1500 BC, this comet came and it affected civilizations all across the world. Describe for us what happened. Well, the interesting thing is I've said already that it seems that different cultures throughout the world took this comet to be a new god that had appeared in the heavens. And so consequently, you've got a considerable amount of... uh, theological change going on but that's not the main thing what happens until around about 1500 bc is that civilizations throughout the world are relatively peaceful that doesn't mean they never fight each other or things but they're relatively peaceful then suddenly around the time that this comet appears 
for a period of about 20 years, there's massive upheavals throughout the world, including, which include warfare, aggression, and violence. Let's give one example. In, in Great Britain and in Ireland and Northern Europe, there's a civilization at that time known as the megalithic civilization. They're the people that built Stonehenge and many other similar um, megalithic structures at that time. Now, they, archaeologists know that they, these people who built Stonehenge, that they had lived very peacefully alongside one another for, for, for centuries. We know this because when their tombs are, when their um, graves are dug up, the skeletons show no wounds that could have been inflicted by, uh, by weapons in warfare or organized tribal feuds. They built no defensive structures around their, around their villages. And they didn't make weapons that were suitable for anything other than just for hunting. Then suddenly, around about 1500 BC, they suddenly start fighting each other. Defensive fortifications are built. The skeletons found in graves after this period show many people with wounds that were caused by, uh, by weapons. Uh, because they were in the Bronze Age, they were able to make bronze swords, weapons were found, and suddenly this peaceful civilization, pretty much overnight, just wiped itself out. That is why the people who built Stonehenge suddenly virtually disappeared from, from the archaeological record around this time. Um, in China, you have revolution and, and, and warlords throughout the country causing them, you know, causing basically a rather advanced civilization to collapse for centuries. In India, the Indus Valley Civilization, which many people believe might be the oldest civilization on Earth, is suddenly attacked by people from uh, mountainous regions to the, to the north and wiped out. The ancient Egyptians suddenly start fighting the Hittites, who are from what is now Turkey, and they live relatively at peace with each other for ages. So suddenly throughout the world, you've got the same thing going on in what's known as the pre-Olmic civilization in Central America, so it actually wipes itself out by civil strife because archaeologists have seen that cities were burned um, and tribes started attacking one another. And this pattern repeats itself throughout the world. Now, no archaeologist or from historic records or historian have discovered a reason for this that it all happened around the same time. And this violence only goes on for about 20 years, 20 or 30 years or so, and then pretty much peters out. And, However, and by this time, the whole world's been in such an upheaval that civilizations have fallen entirely, like the Indus Valley Civilization in India. The, um, the Egyptians have created their first empire. They never bothered. They've been in existence for centuries before that, but they'd never bothered to build an empire throughout the Middle East. And you've got all sorts of turmoil taking place. Um, and this seems to coincide with the appearance of this comet. And it's modern research by, by us, uh, astrophysicists into comets show that uh, well, basically what a comet is, as it's often been described, is an icy, uh, as a, a dirty snowball. It's made of primarily of, of carbon dioxide, water ice, and other chemicals held together with um, bits of silicon rock, all sorts of things, but it's not really a solid body in the same way 
that a planet is or a, or a, or a meteor. And, and you also mentioned, Graham, in your book that we have this sort of fanciful image that it has a misty tail and it's very ephemeral, but that's not exactly what it has or what it looks like. No, yeah, it's basically it's a solid object, and what the tail comes off it when it comes close into the center of the uh, into the solar system, and the the sun causes it to heat up, and basically this is where the tail comes from. It's uh, it's uh, substances basically evaporating from the comet. Um, that's in simple terms, anyway. Comets when... contain many chemicals, and it seems that, and, and in my theory, anyway. Um, Which is I unique. Believe, I, I'd yeah. like to presage that by telling the audience that this is a very revolutionary um, account of events, and and you give reason for why you think, in part, humanity became so full of strife. Yeah, well, according to the Chinese descriptions of this comet, it broke apart. It must I mean, we've, I've explained how big it was. Now, comets are anything from... Um, a, a couple of miles across up to, say, 100 miles across. But even if it was a huge comet of about 100 miles across, as large as it was, it had to be very close to the Earth. Parts of it probably exploded in the Earth's atmosphere. And, and you said that it was the scale of 20 times larger than the full moon? Um, it was... The, the Chinese described it as four times larger. Four times. Um, but there's a similar description from Egypt which describes something there that seems to be about 20 times the size of the mm-hmm. full moon, but it's only there for a short time. Now, this could be part of the, the comet breaking off okay. and exploding in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, if this happened, comets contain all sorts of substances that could contaminate the Earth's atmosphere. One of these is an amino acid known as vesoprasin, and this is known to create aggressive behavior in human beings. Um, some people have believed that uh, during the Vietnam War, this substance was used for a time to try and increase the aggressive behavior of the U.S. troops stationed in Vietnam. Uh, it was never proven, but what the, my point is that vesopressin is known to be a substance that causes aggressive behavior. Now, if a comet contained enough of this, and a large enough portion or portions broke off and contaminated the, the atmosphere and the water cycle and so on, this could explain, I'm not saying it does, but it could explain why there was sudden increased aggressive behavior for this period of time. And and what about, you know, given the the consequences of, of global warming and the consideration for any kind of near-Earth object event. And we, 21st Century Radio has made a special study of this over the last two decades or so. Um, is there concern about it from that vantage point, that perhaps there was a heating of the environment and therefore there was a shortage of food, and that was one of the reasons there was such violent behavior and conquest? It could. I mean, it's not, not so much the heating of it, but the cooling effect. Now, if it depends what actually crashed into the Earth's atmosphere onto the Earth. Now, they b- believe that the object that wiped out the dinosaurs and most of life on Earth um, some 65 million years ago was only about 10 miles across. Now, that was a solid rock object, probably, you know, an asteroid. But if a comet 10 miles across hit the Earth, there would be massive um, disruption. I mean, it would create basically a a nuclear winter, as people have described it. In other words, it would contaminate the atmosphere with so much debris thrown up that it would uh, block out the sun for, for for, for a year or two and and 
crops would die, there would be massive starvation. There would be certainly a mm-hmm. lot, a great deal of archaeological and the historical record of something happening like this. So clearly the entire comet itself, or such a very large thing, didn't crash into the Earth. Now a fragment of the, a comet breaking off, or smaller fragments, and exploding in the atmosphere, now that could have happened. And this is, seems to be what did happen according to, you know, putting together the Chinese accounts of what's described in Egypt as well. Now, this did happen. We know now that in the year 1908, on the 30th of, of June, in fact, just over exactly 100 years ago, something happened in Siberia, in northern Russia, in north, uh, northeastern Russia, where a, a, an object exploded somewhere in the middle of this forested region, flattening millions of acres of forest. Now, the only object, the only thing that could do something like that that we know now would be something like an atomic explosion. Well, this is in 1908. And it is now believed that a a fragment of a comet exploded in the air as an airburst over Siberia at that time. Um, That would open... The the actual object that exploded is probably um, only about the size of a house. But enough, um, but it, it, enough uh, of this substance, vesopressin, could have gotten into the water table and could have actually contaminated the atmosphere to affect violent behavior, even though it's only a relatively small object. That after this time, after that happened, that's the only comet that we know that's exploded in the atmosphere of the Earth in, in modern recorded history. And, well... Look what happens after this. Mm-hmm. We have the 20th century. It's the most violent century ever. You look at the strange things that happen. Russian Revolution. You've got the First World War. You've got the rise of fascism in Italy and in, in, in Spain. You've got the rise of Hitler after the First World War. You've got the rise of Stalin, the rise of Maoism in China. It's the most violent century of... It's, it's, everybody in the world seems to have gone completely bonkers. So we could say envir- environmental impacts on mind. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so it in, could have happened then. And it and it and you know there's there's such a reality to that. And I've studied for many years and spoken at great length on environmental impacts on health. And certainly we now know lead poisoning leads to violence. And there's many kinds of um, environmental toxicities that makes a human or a human civilization imbalanced. So when you look then at 2024 and astronomers say, oh, yeah, this horrendous thing is coming around again. And what will it do? How does the astronomical and I dare even say the national security community address what I can only call near-Earth objects, to, to put it within the frame of reference of study. Well, the thing about the particular, this particular comet, Pons Booth, which seems to be the one that went, came past um, in 1486 BC, the one that's responsible for what I've suggested... Right, the Pons Brooks comet. The Pons uh-huh. Brooks one. Right. Now, obviously, it came very close to the Earth at that time, and fragments of it or fragment broke off. But luckily, it didn't hit us. If it did, the human race would probably have been wiped out because it sounds to have been a particularly huge comet. Now, when it comes around this time, it's not, and so nobody needs to panic, it's not likely to hit the Earth. Uh, Scientists don't think it's going to kind of crash into the Earth. But we are going to go through, or very likely to go through, its tail and small fragments of the comet that's broken off as it comes into the inner solar system could explode in the atmosphere of the Earth. 
and something similar could happen again. But we don't know that for a fact. As for what to do about it, at the moment, there's just other than firing atomic mis- missiles at these things, there's very little we can do. Mm-hmm. Very often, that creates more of a danger than it does um, um, by breaking the thing up into lots of smaller fragments. Right. It's, it's not as simple as Hollywood would make it seem. Oh, yes, we're just <laughs> going to be rescued by our own technology. And then, and then and the then Bruce Willis up there. <laughs> A whole slew of them, I'm sure, with their guns blasting and not a prayer among them. So it'll be left to the rest of us to pray hardy. Uh, when you when you look at the shift, though, in the religions and in what people believed and the commonality of the sun disk with the rays, do you find, because we've studied on 21st Century Radio with many people about the cyclicity of catastrophism, that it's not linear, and that many civilizations have come and gone and come and gone, and we're likely to be among that lineage of coming and going. How do you put it into the, that sort of frame of reference that perhaps one might look to for from the wisdom teachings? Well, I, all I can say, I'm, 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 I'm no great expert on sort of, you know, on metaphysics, but all I know, I mean, I'm... A historian and just look at historical mysteries and try and see if there's any any explanation behind some of these historical mysteries, as I've mentioned. But what I said earlier, I found absolutely fascinating, and that is how over and over again, some seemingly natural disaster or natural uh, event has created a major turning point in world history. Mm-hmm very often accompanied by um, religious changes. Now, in other words, if suddenly a new god comes along, people are going to start saying, well, this is a new god to worship. But the very interesting thing that happened after this comet appeared in 1486 BC is, first of all, you've got a couple of centuries of, of violence throughout the world. Then you've got suddenly great, throughout the world, new religions starting up, which are astonishingly peaceful. Before that, you've got all sorts of different religions that say, fight for our God, do this, do that, or do the other. But suddenly you've got these religions that not only are preaching peace, which may be a reaction to the the, the violence that they probably couldn't explain, but there's suddenly, it's the beginning of monotheism, the belief in a single God. Now, it seems that the the belief in a single God in, uh, in ancient Canaan or Israel appeared around this time. You've got it in Egypt with the birth of something called Artanism, which was the base of the worship of one god that was symbolized by this sphere and these lines beneath it, which a lot of Egyptologists have thought might be the sun, but as I've argued, is probably this comet. In China, you've got the, the birth of a, a single god religion, and the same thing happens in India. In fact, this religion eventually became early Hinduism that believed in many gods, but the original version of it just believed in one single god. So you've got this particular comet not only changed civilization by causing people to fight one another for a couple of, cent- couple of decades, and then the world has changed after that anyway, but it may have brought to Earth somehow the concept of a single god, monotheism. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think many um, historians and metaphysicians have said that oftentimes it's after great suffering and loss that humanity takes a giant leap forward, so to speak, that 
sometimes we seem to be reborn like the phoenix with a much more refined understanding and more um, refined behavior after great tragedy. Unfortunately, that seems how humans tend to advance. But look, what I'd like to do is take a little break. When we come back, Graham, I'm really curious about your own process of when you had the aha of, oh, my God, look at all of these things that happened after the megalithic culture ceased. And then you had monotheism. And as you pointed out in these other cultures, whether it was in China or Asia or India, that there was a a certain underlying homogeny among them that was completely contrary to what existed before, but I, I want you to surprise us all by telling us, did you see the comet first and these correspondences, or did you study things in pieces, and then, oh my God, you saw it. So when we come back, you'll tell us all, because I don't know the answer to that question either. Graham Phillips is our guest, his book, The End of Eden, The Comet That Changed Civilization. You can learn more of Graham's work online at Phillips. Dot net. And of course, if you forget that, links to our guests are at 21st21stcenturyradio.com. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Pearl, author of The Reconnection Heal Others, Heal Yourself, and founder of Reconnective Healing. You can learn more about us at www.theconnection.com. And you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Zoe Hieronymus, sitting in tonight for Dr. Bob. And Graham Phillips is our guest. He is the author of numerous books, The Templars and the Ark of the Covenant, Atlantis, The Ten Plagues of Egypt, and much more. Joining us from England, Graham's current book, The End of Eden, The Comet That Changed Civilization. You can find out more online at his website, www.grahamphillips.com with two L's, dot net, or you can also call Inner Traditions Bear and Company for a copy of his book at 1-800-246-8648. That's 1-800-246-8648. So, Graham, before the break, I sort of asked you, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, <laughs> your knowledge of the comet, or you're looking at all of these sort of dramatic changes in cultures around the world around the time period of 1500 or 1486 BC? Well, it actually started completely nothing to do with any of that. I mean, I was originally um, researching for a book about the origins of, um, of the ancient Israelite religion in what was then called Canaan, Israel, and parts of Jordan today. Um, and I was trying to sort of pretty much work out had they got their idea. I mean, the, 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 in the Old Testament, we've, it tells us that um, that obviously you have Abraham and his descendants worshiping the one God before the period when uh, the, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. But it's not until the period of Moses that you actually have the Israelites as a whole, even knowing there's such a thing as a, as, as, as a single one God that they should be worshiping. And I'm trying to work out basically when this came into when this came around. When when the nomadic family of the patriarchs and matriarchs then became institutionalized among the people. Is that basically, what you're meaning? It's not so much then. It's more to do with when when exactly was the time of Moses. Um, 
But anyway, it was, it was then when I found that I discovered that this new religion called Artanism starts in Egypt about the same time, which is represented by what many people refer to in Egypt only as the sun, as the sun disk, which is this, as I talked about before, this uh, circle with lines radiating out beneath it. And, uh, but the that everyone suddenly thought, oh, they all started worshipping the sun, but for some reason they decided that the sun was the only god, and for a period of about 18 years in, in, um, in Egyptian history, this is the only god that was allowed to be worshipped by the people. Um, and I was trying to find out where this religion came from. That 300 or 400 year span, I guess, between Abraham and Moses. Yeah, about that, yeah, mm-hmm. about that time. And, and so that's what you were looking for, and then you and then started to notice. This same symbol that was appearing in different cultures throughout the world. And that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it can't be the sun. Why are they all suddenly starting worshiping the sun at the same time? Okay, of course, people worship the sun. They've all got sun gods. But why, if, the, if, if this represents the sun, like, you know, traditional mm-hmm. anthropologists and historians had said, and, you know, the Chinese um, archaeologists said, oh, yes, we found this sun symbol represented everywhere. In India, the same thing. And Mexico, yeah, yeah, the sun started to be worshipped at this time. I thought, well... Why are they representing the sun in this strange way with just lines radiating out beneath it? And secondly, why suddenly worship the sun? I thought first, well, maybe something strange had happened to the sun. But it's when I found Chinese records that describe actually this thing was a comet that I suddenly realized, of course, this is what happened to have happened at the time. But I thought, well, it must have been a particularly big comet. And that's how it started. Hmm, how interesting. And, and in describing that journey, if you don't mind just for a moment, because there aren't that many people who, A, are willing to sort of suspend their judgment and go where many historians dare not go because they're afraid of tenure and <laughs> loss of reputation and income and all those things that often get in the way of truth seekers, unless they're really truth seekers. When you discovered the constitution of a comet. I mean, at what point did you, were you able to appreciate that perhaps it was an environmental impact that affected this culture or shift in all these places? I think it's when I started reading about the, 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 what happened when the, uh, the comet fragment exploded over Siberia at Tunguska in 1908 mm-hmm. and um, realized that, I mean, this flattened, as I say, uh, hundreds of miles, thousands. Yeah, of the pictures miles are amazing, making forest. forests look like matchsticks. If it had, if it had landed, you've seen pictures of yes, it. Yes, uh huh, of course. No, it just, I mean, that, that, if it had hit New York, there would be no New York. Right. I'm talking about the state, not just the city. Right. Um, that's the kind of area that it um, that it flattened. So obviously, that, that, that that's the kind of inv- that's a direct impact, but. But, but And I also think it has meaning for us when we look at all the sort of dire predictions and all the kinds of programming now about, you know, what happens if the Earth heats four degrees? What if it heats five degrees? What if it hits six degrees? I mean, it's, it's as if to suggest, I think, in some respects, what you've found is, is a clear map of what happens when you have catastrophe of a global scale. Well, yeah, I mean, firstly, but what scientists have been, obviously look for is the direct and obvious effects like... Is, is there something going to cause um, a change of, of, of temperature? Is there going to be any kind of contamination and so forth? But the kind of subtle contamination I'm talking about by making people only slightly more violent, I mean, mm-hmm. there's not enough of this stuff kicking around in the atmosphere 
to make everybody suddenly go around cutting their own throats. Mm -hmm. But all you need in a in culture such as ours, if we have single leaders, and we do, right. we only need an Adolf Hitler to get us to go off and do things. Right. We only need certain more violent people to behave slightly more violently. And then you've got an entire change. It's, it's as, as subtle as you were saying about this. Oh, well, you know, so, so, oh, the earth will heat up two or three degrees. Well, if somebody just said that to me a few years ago, I said, well, that's nothing, is it? But, of course, that makes all the difference. Right. You then get sort of, you, you know, you get disasters, hurricanes, and all sorts of things coming about because of this. And a small amount of a change in the chemical in the atmosphere, which doesn't actually, isn't noticeable in the fact that it makes it hot or anything, but can make human beings slightly more aggressive, well, when we've got atomic weapons and so forth, you know, that could be the end of us. Yeah, exactly. But what I'm trying to say is well, let's be ready for 2024 when this thing comes back. When you look at the work that you do, how has the astronomical or the historical community responded, number one, to your fact-finding, and number two, your thesis? It's interesting. I've, um, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, i tell you what, the, the orthodox academics you know, historians and, and so forth, and, uh, again, theologians. It's more, the, it's more the archaeologists and historians that would tend to sort of take an interest in what I do, more mm -hmm. than, you know, theologians, I think. Um, they tend to ignore it, and the only reason I can think here is that a lot of conspiracy theories or ideas, you know, some alternative history ideas that come out um, are probably fairly... Uh, probably fairly easy to pull apart. I don't mean to say that that means that they're wrong. Right. It's just that they're probably put together by people who are not, um, are not sufficiently um, academic mm -hmm. to put together an argument that sort of holds water. But what I do is, I'm not saying that I'm a great academic. I'm not. What I do is I'm more of a sort of historical journalist. I will put together the work of a lot of other historical researchers and archaeologists and historians and put together their... I mean, for example, yes, the chi Chinese archaeologists know that things happened there. Archaeologists in India know what was happening there and Egyptologists know what was happening there. But what these people don't do is look at what's happening elsewhere. Right, well, you're so, a pattern. So you know, you see patterns, yeah. So uh -huh. The work of historians, Egyptologists, archaeologists. Historians tend never to talk to archaeologists right. and vice versa. Right. They certainly don't talk to astronomers. And well, I put all that together and that's how I come up with these. So basically, it's not a case of these historians and archaeologists turning around saying, Graham Phillips, you're making all this up. It's a lot of old nonsense. Basically, I'm just referring to their own work. Right. <laughs> no, and I think that's what's so beautiful about it, because perhaps your work in news in the past, I know you worked at the BBC, and you are a journalist, and you know how to investigate stories, and, and I think for people who come from, it's so interesting when people specialize that they get sort of containerized in the box of the academia in which they're grounded, whereas when somebody comes from the outside and can synthesize and aggregate, you see, see things that no specialist will ever have the opportunity to see. Well, true, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's any other way that these specialists can do it because you have to learn so much to mm -hmm. be able to sort of discover all these things in archaeology. Mm -hmm. or, you, know, you have to dev devote so much time to it. You can't be other, anything other than a specialist, but it does need more people like me, I think. I mean, there should be an actual academic discipline like what I do yeah. um, in order to sort of put these things together. But there isn't one, really. It's sort of like rather sort of, well, 
considered to be alternative no, it's, it's history, like, which exactly. I don't like that. It's uh, like the wonderful work of um, Forbidden History. I mean, these, yeah, these yeah. such wonderful additions to human knowledge, and one can only hope that, you know, that our youth culture will appreciate. I think they've grown up with enough doubt <laughs> that they're a little suspect of being told anything that's true, so they might be a little bit more willing to listen to something out of the box. So I, I just think you've done a great job, Graham. And how would you summarize for yourself and for the rest of us how this work, The End of Eden, affected you in your own life? Um, it's difficult to say, because the thing is, because for the last 25 years I've been writing books about historical mysteries, and I've discovered an artifact which may have been behind the story of the Holy Grail, um, traced a, a, a series of clues hidden in stained glass windows in churches in England that, re, that reveal where the Ark of the Covenant might be buried, um, been to Egypt and discovered that the mask of Tutankhamun is actually the mask of his um, of his evil brother, <laughs> and so I mean I've had so many of these sort of things that I've discovered over the years that it's getting a bit par for the course now. Mm-hmm. And so discovering that a sort of a comet could have changed civilization, I'm maybe I'm getting a bit too blasé about the whole thing. It's, but, well, it, it's like somebody who has a beat, you know, in the news, if they're on the murder beat, you just sort of get used to what you do and you know the right questions to ask. Well, people have said to me, well, how come you keep finding out these things? Well, that's what I do. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, and one of the things I was wondering recently about what happens when we lose our heirloom timepieces, like culture going off a lunar awareness, or what happened when Greenwich Meridian of England became the baseline for all our astrological calculations when before it, it was Giza. I think Carl Monk, you know, did a great job to show when we went off of our Giza marker of the Orion belt, we lost the connector between all these sacred sites and things around the world. And so I've often sort of wondered that here, I'll give you a topic. <laughs> I don't have oh, the yeah, talent you do. There you go. The heirlooms we've lost, the heirloom timepieces. I think losing lunar consciousness has had the most drastic impact on human culture of anything when the Gregorian calendar came in place. And I really believe losing that sort of timekeeper of the Giza Plateau as the meridian marker for zero zero and moving it very politically to Greenwich um, sort of threw everything off by 30 degrees. Anyway, it's just something I've thought about. Well, I'm told we've come to the end of this portion of our program. Well, you, you are a wonderful scholar. Your, your books certainly excite many people worldwide. You provoke people to think, suspend their judgment. And, and I think importantly to, to show people that intuition is vital and you can follow hard clues and that people of history tend to leave clues for people of the future. And I think that when I look at all your work, it's one of the splendid realities of your sleuthing is that you use existing history, existing writing, and existing artifact to see how it might point to something broader and real. And I, I for one, it's been just a pleasure sharing time with you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure for me too. All right. Well, our guest has been Graham Phillips again. Follow up with Graham on your own. You can see he is a magnificent researcher and uh, you might have an idea for him that he hasn't thought of on his own, but I suspect he has. You can go to his website, net. You can order his books um, from his website or amazon.com. Thank you for listening to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and remember, we do need more love in the world.